2: You've undoubtedly heard that it's not what's outside, but what's inside that counts. Well, that's an adage that applies to people, but also to planets and moons. The geologic processes in their interiors determine things like surface structure and atmosphere. But it's tricky to study their interiors, which is why, for ages, some have suggested that our own Earth was hollow, you know, a cavernous space ideal for exploration. Science fiction writer Jules Verne seized on that idea, and Hollywood followed.
0: We're still falling!
2: Ah! It's unthinkable, but it must be true. A man took some tools and went where no human being had ever set foot. Alone. Went into the interior of the Earth. We've since learned, of course, that the Earth has a molten metal core. And we're thankful for the magnetic field it creates, because that helps make life possible. But what about the other planets and moons of our solar system? What's going on with them deep inside? Well, the answer to that guides us in our understanding of how the solar system formed, but also bears on whether the conditions at the surface are suitable for life. This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak.
1: I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, we journey to the center of Jupiter, its moon Io, Saturn's moon Titan, and other moons and planets. Also, to the icy rocks that dart through the solar system, find out how a NASA mission to an asteroid lets us travel through time to the birth of Earth, and why the intense heat and crushing pressure of Venus makes it the best and the worst bit of real estate in the solar system. This episode goes Inside Planets. Human behavior aside, a lot of drama unfolds on Earth's surface, geologically speaking. Earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanic activity. To understand all that shifting, shaking and erupting, we need to know what's going on deep below
2: our feet. The interior of our planet is dynamic. Under intense heat and pressure, continental plates crash together and a core of molten iron churns. But there are other planets, and some moons, that have dynamic interiors as well. Wanting to draw attention to this is what prompted Johns Hopkins University astronomer, Sabina Stanley, to write her book, What's Hidden Inside Planets. A lot of the
3: stuff you hear about planets is all about their atmospheres and the surfaces, and I think it's much harder to know what's going on inside the planets, and so people don't know a lot about that. And so I thought I could try and bring that to light, unearth, the hidden mysteries of what go on inside planets because it's so important for what happens on the surface in the atmosphere. So that was really what inspired me to write the book.
2: Trying to observe the extremely hot, high-pressure world inside our planet is challenging, but one natural phenomenon assists by bringing what's happening inside the Earth prominently to the surface.
3: A lot of the stuff that happens on the surface of a planet, a lot of the atmosphere, for example, that we breathe actually gets outgassed from volcanoes. I say that volcanoes are an amazing, I would call it almost a tunnel into the interior of the planet. Volcanoes bring some of that material from the inside all the way to the surface where it's suddenly much easier to study. So it's really important for us to, to understand what's going on inside a planet and volcanoes are kind of that window into the interior.
1: Of course, volcanoes are not unique to Earth. They are found throughout the solar system, on the planets Mars, Venus, and Pluto, and on some moons, too. Most solar system volcanoes are not active, but one is spectacularly so, Jupiter's moon Io. It has hundreds of volcanoes, some of which spew lava miles and miles into the sky. At times, these eruptions can even be seen from Earth. And they're giving us clues into how Jupiter itself formed.
3: So the amazing thing about Io, it's the most volcanically active body in the solar system. The surface is just covered in these volcanoes. And so the more information we can get about how many volcanoes are active, how many are out there, what's the temperature like at these volcanoes, the more we can understand what's going on with the temperature inside of the moon. And that then tells us a lot about what the inside of Io is like. That then can also help us understand how Io formed, how it formed is going to be completely related to how it's structured today, um, and also how the Jupiter system in general formed.
2: Of the air in this room where I'm sitting now, I mean, how much of this air has ever been inside the Earth and was spewed out by a volcano? Is it totally insignificant or is it a significant fraction? So
3: the amazing thing about Earth, right? If we ever had some sort of primordial atmosphere, some atmosphere at the be- beginning of the planet, the forming of the planet, that atmosphere went away, and our atmosphere is called a secondary atmosphere because it formed later, and it actually got outgassed from the center. All of the volatile elements, like the 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 water vapor, the oxygen, those kinds of things, they end up coming from inside the planet, right? So. Well, a lot of it does. There's also the possibility that things like comets that smashed into the Earth much later on released more volatiles that also helped create our atmosphere. So we don't know exactly how much comes from the inside and how much came from comets.
2: But there's the the real possibility that what I'm breathing now is, you know, got spewed out from some volcano a long time ago. Yeah,
3: I guess that's one way to look at it.
2: (laughs) Well, I don't know if that'll change my, my habits with respect to breathing, but it's still an interesting <laughs> fact. You you made a point here about the early life of planets, uh, how planets were formed. And of course, we weren't around when the Earth formed or any of the other planets. What do we think the scenario really was if you had to describe it? About 4.6
3: billion years ago, we were what we call a molecular cloud. There was a bunch of dust and gas, mostly hydrogen, floating around in space, and something made it kind of squish together a little more. We think maybe a a nearby supernova went off, a huge explosion that kind of caused these these, uh, shock waves to kind of push the material closer together. And the amazing thing about gravity is that when you force masses together, they become more attracted to each other gravitationally, so they end up kind of getting closer and closer together. So our solar system formed when this happened, And initially, there was a proto-sun at the center as more material was falling into it. But as long as you have just a little bit of rotation in the system, so the particles are all moving around, as long as there's a little bit of rotation, when that collapse happens and everything's moving towards the center, you end up getting a disk of material that ends up orbiting or circling around uh, the proto-sun as it was forming. So that disk you got there now has a bunch of gas and dust in it. And then it, too, had all sorts of clumping that happened because of gravity, and eventually those became our planets.
2: All right. Well, this is a pretty interesting uh, scenario. Uh, But, you know, if we were around four and a half billion years ago, which, you know, I almost was, uh, you (laughs) know, (laughs) that sounds like something fairly dramatic to witness. Mm -hmm. But how much time did it take? I mean, how long would I have to sit there watching this disk of material, Mm -hmm. you know, collapsed into planets and moons?
3: Yeah, so I'm going to say not that long, but by that I mean a few million years. So it might sound long, but on geologic timescales or on astronomical
2: timescales, it's really short. But studying volcanoes, you know, how does that give us any insight into this process? Right, so
3: the amazing thing about that material that was in that gas and, and dust disk is as material was getting clumpier and clumpier and getting bigger and bigger. Lots of collisions were happening, material was coming together, and eventually you were forming bodies that were about the size of the moon, let's say, right, maybe a thousand miles across or so. And as material starts getting inside a body, the temperature increases and the pressures increase inside a body. And so A lot of chemistry happens when you're at high pressures and high temperatures. And so the actual composition of the material, like the structure of the chemistry is going to be different. So when you look inside a planet, for example, right now, if I have carbon on the surface of the earth in my pencil lead, for example, that's one phase of carbon. But if I put it under really high pressure, I get diamond. So inside the earth, when you have carbon, you sometimes find it in the form of diamond. So similarly with other elements, right? If we know what hydrogen is like on the surface of earth or what oxygen is like on the surface of earth, it can be very different inside the planet. So volcanoes are really great because they sample the material that's inside the planet coming back to the surface. So we can actually learn what happened to it when it ended up being kind of stuck in the middle of this high pressure, high temperature environment.
2: So it sounds to me, what you're saying is that if your goal is to understand how planets form, you know, in general, but also the planets of our own solar system, volcanoes can, you know, give you valuable information about that, that they can sample places you can't reach otherwise.
3: Absolutely. That's exactly right. Most of the stuff that made up the earth is inside the earth, not on the surface. And it's really hard to reach the inside of the earth. So
2: volcanoes bring some material to us. Maybe you could expand on that a little bit. How how deep can we dig on the Earth?
3: Yeah, great question. You know, I remember as a kid wanting to kind of dig my way with my shovel in my sandbox all the way to the center of the Earth, and that's just not possible. The deepest we've ever drilled into the Earth is about eight miles. So really, really shallow. The radius of the Earth, you're talking about something that's close to 4,000 miles, 6,300 kilometers or so. Uh, So it's really just getting at like the outermost Skin of the peach, as a uh, quote I like to talk about from the movie, The Core. The sir, We cannot drill into the interior of the Earth. The temperature and pressure
2: is just too high. Yeah, well, as I recall, that movie, The Core, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these people go into a very interesting kind of spacecraft, except it wasn't going out into space. It looked like some sort of, I don't know, metal worm or whatever. <laughs> it was just going to go down to try and get to the core of the Earth, right?
3: Yep, that's right. That was my favorite movie, so I, I remember it in detail. Um, the amazing thing, is we can't do that in reality. We can't get down there. So we need to use kind of clever ways to scan what's going on inside planets. So we're, le- we're fortunate with things like volcanoes that we can bring material up, but there are other ways we can study the inside of the Earth and other planets by doing these scans with different fields, for example.
2: I remember an exercise we did, I guess it was in elementary school or whatever, where we would make sort of clay models of the planets, right? So you had to decide, well, what's going to be near the center of the planet? You know, it it consisted of various layers, actually. Uh, Is that true or was that just something that, you know, one of my teachers made up?
3: No, that's actually quite accurate. The planets are mostly layered, although there are some subtleties in there. I like to, whenever I think about planets, I like to think of like Ferrero Rochers or those kinds of chocolates that have you know, a nut at the center and then a, a, a moussey layer and then a crunchy outside. Um, that's sort of my, my go-to analogy for the Earth. Uh, but the Earth is layered. We've got an iron core at the center Uh, Then we have a rocky mantle layer. The outer half of it's pretty much the rocky mantle layer, and then this thin crust on top. And the other rocky planets in the solar system, Mars, Venus, the Moon, uh, uh, Mercury, they're pretty much the same. They have some amount of iron at the center and then a rocky layer. But the outer planets, the gas giants and the ice giants, they're a little bit more complicated. They're probably not as nicely layered as the interior planets are.
2: I, well, I don't want to jump the gun here, but I, I always thought that planets in the outer solar system, Jupiter and Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, those that they, you know, the, the, they were also layered, but they were layered with maybe a gas layer on the outside mm-hmm. and something hard in the center, you know, that chewy nougat core, whatever, mm-hmm. with some sort of metals or, or stuff like mm-hmm. that. But you're saying that's not quite the story.
3: Yeah, so it's amazing. That was our thinking early on, but people, when they started learning about what happens to materials when they're under high, really high pressure and temperature, started thinking that it might not be so simple, that some of the layers might mix inside giant planets. And it turns out that the Juno mission, which is at Jupiter, uh, took gravity measurements of Jupiter and actually determined that this is true, that the layers are a little bit mixed. So now we talk about there being a fuzzy core Inside Jupiter, where the the rocky layer at the very kind of heart of Jupiter actually mixes in a little bit with the gases uh, surrounding it, the hydrogen and the helium, so there might be more like just a, a mixture of that hydrogen and helium in the rock uh, as you go away from the rocky core Well,
2: oh, it doesn't sound so simple anymore it's not okay. <laughs> well that's too bad because <laughs> you know I like to visualize things that are simple, but if, if we could make a i don't know a model of Jupiter you know here it is, Bob. You know, uh, it's, well, tell me what it would be like. I mean, you know, as a kid, I, I knew that Jupiter on the outside was pretty uh, pretty gaseous. I mean, the big red spot wasn't a bit of Jovian desert or anything mm-hmm. that happened to be red. It was, you know, red gases and things like that. So if you could slice open Jupiter, mm-hmm. tell us what you'd find.
3: Yeah, great question. So. Let's start on the outside. So imagine you're like a probe descending into Jupiter. The outermost layer is absolutely this gaseous atmosphere. It's mostly hydrogen and helium. Interestingly, all the colors you see when you look at Jupiter, like the great red spot, um, even though Jupiter's mostly hydrogen and helium, those gases are, are clear. So what you're actually seeing are little pollutants into the hydrogen and helium, things like ammonia, sulfur, uh, those kinds of things give Jupiter its really cool colors. Uh, but that gaseous layer, as you keep start going deeper and deeper into the planet, the hydrogen and the helium, it's getting hotter and it's getting under higher and higher pressure, it's getting squeezed together. And if you go to about 10% into the planet, so maybe about 9,000 kilometers or so, 8,000 kilometers, uh, you end up squeezing the hydrogen so much that the uh, hydrogen becomes a metal. So we're used to hydrogen being a gas, helium being a gas, but if you squeeze it enough, the hydrogen uh, nuclei, the protons, actually end up kind of getting together and connecting to each other, and then the electrons that surround the hydrogen nucleus actually flow through the hydrogen, so it behaves the way that we think, understand metals to behave. So Jupiter is mostly liquid metallic hydrogen. Now very deep inside, if you get down to kind of close to the center, we believe that there's some rocky, icy, all the other materials at the center. Um, But even though most of the planet is is hydrogen, it's not really gaseous hydrogen. It's just the outer layers that are kind of this atmospheric type stuff. Deeper in, it's much more complicated.
2: I see. So, okay. So how should I envision, say, throwing a you know, a rock into Jupiter. I mean, you know, I, I, as a kid, you'd look at Jupiter, at pictures of Jupiter and say, okay, well, uh, it's big. And if I threw a rock into it, I would throw the rock and you'd hear a clunk shortly thereafter. But that's not the way it is.
3: Yeah, so the that rock, it would start descending down and eventually, actually, it would reach pressures that would probably break it apart as well into its constituents and almost dissolve the rock into the hydrogen and helium. So, yeah, so that would be quite interesting.
2: And whatever the story is for Jupiter, presumably it's a similar story for Saturn or Uranus and Neptune, right? Well, for Saturn, it is quite similar. So
3: Saturn's about a little bit smaller than Jupiter. So how deep you have to go before the hydrogen becomes a metal is further down. But the same story, gaseous hydrogen-helium atmosphere. And then deep enough, you get metallic hydrogen uh, making up most of the planet and a rocky core at the center, but probably some fuzziness in there as well. Uh, Uranus and Neptune are different beasts, however.
2: In what sense?
3: So even though the very outermost layer is also a hydrogen-helium atmosphere, there's much less hydrogen and helium in Uranus and Neptune than in Jupiter and Saturn. So they maybe have like 10% of their outer layers being this hydrogen-helium layer. The rest of the planet is mostly what we call ices, by which we mean materials like water, ammonia, methane, things that are quite volatile um, when we experience them. So those planets have a lot more of those water, ammonia, and methane type materials than they do hydrogen and helium.
2: I'm kind of wonder i mean many of the materials you're talking about are the kinds of things that you could pump into the gas tank of your car right and burn in a hydrogen oxygen atmosphere as we seem to have here on earth at least for a while and so I, I i don't know i i can't, maybe it's just a science fiction story but you know are we ever going to be able to use all this methane for example that's in the in the solar system or is it just a curious fact of of astronomy
3: Yeah, I think it's probably just a curious fact of astronomy, although, you know, people are are looking for when people go out in the solar system and look for what are there resources out there that we could use. I think people are looking more close to home, first of all, right, if there's anything we could use here. Um, It's more looking at things like near Earth asteroids that might have some precious metals that we can use for things like how we how we build our electronics, electric vehicles, batteries, things like that. That's where I've seen people looking at bringing stuff out there back here for use
1: there's more to say about those asteroids these icy rocks may hold some secrets to how planets form and how earth became habitable for life all of that
2: next this episode is inside planets on big picture science In October 2023, the NASA Psyche mission launched a spacecraft to a world made almost entirely of metal. Three, two, one, engine ignition. And liftoff, liftoff of Falcon
3: Heavy and Psyche on a mission to a metal asteroid in deep space to study the building blocks of our planet's inner space.
1: The asteroid Psyche, which orbits our Sun between Mars and Jupiter, has a unique metallic makeup that could provide valuable information about how rocky planets form. The asteroid itself appears to be the nickel-iron core of a protoplanet, one that failed to form an outer shell
3: asteroids are amazing because I like to think of them, they are the building blocks of planets. They're essentially the leftovers from the cooking that happened that created the planets. So when our solar system formed, you started with this gas and dust disc, stuff started clumping together, eventually things got to about the size of asteroids. And some of those asteroids ended up colliding together to form bigger and bigger bodies and form planets, but some of them didn't. And so those leftovers, those asteroids are like, information, they're like peering back in time to the beginning of the solar system, where you can see what were the materials that created planets, including the Earth. So whenever we go to an asteroid or we we study an asteroid and we learn about what it's made of, what its interior is like, we are really asking what were the building blocks of our own planet made of. And that can help us understand how Earth formed and what's inside the Earth.
2: But you know, just being a little skeptical, I mean, this is the story that's usually offered for why we should study asteroids often made by people who study asteroids. Uh, but on the other hand, you know that's like saying we could study flour and salt and sugar and stuff like that and learn about how cakes are made, but actually it doesn't tell you how cakes are made because you don't see the process. I mean, is this such a rich area for study?
3: So you're right in some sense that you don't see the process, but knowing the ingredients on a cake, if, you've got a, if you see a cake on the counter and you want to make that cake, knowing what the ingredients are are kind of important to do that. And that's, so that's the main thing, but also with asteroids, um, not only are you getting the ingredients, but you're learning about kind of how many are there? What, what sort of different environments did they exist in? How many do they collide? The fact that we see asteroids, uh, fragments of asteroids that end up coming to earth, so meteors, right? Meteorites that end up on the surface from meteors that hit earth, that brings us samples from the basically the beginning of earth back to Earth so we can study. So one of the main reasons we know that Earth has an iron core is because we have a lot of iron meteorites, for example, and those used to be the cores of asteroids that ended up, an asteroid got broken apart, some parts of it came flinging to Earth, some landed on the surface of the Earth. So some ways we can actually interrogate the interior of an asteroid easier than we can the interior of the Earth, even though we're much closer, because samples of those asteroids have ended up here. So it ends up being really important because we can't figure out what all the ingredients are inside the earth itself
2: well these asteroids may be physically small but they contain clues to the history of our solar system and that's large we've been talking about how earth formed billions of years ago but what about all the other planets in our solar system and for that matter What about the planets outside our solar system, exoplanets?
1: In the last 30 years, astronomers have identified many thousands of exoplanets orbiting other stars. Some appear to be rocky, like Earth, while others are more gaseous, like Jupiter. Knowing that there are other planets like Earth out there is of interest to anyone wanting to know whether we are alone
2: in the universe. Could
1: any of these exoplanets sustain
2: life? Studying exoplanets is also useful for understanding how planets in our solar system evolved. Astronomer Sabina Stanley explains why scientists were thrilled when it was announced at a meeting of the American Astronomical Society that they'd identified the chemical composition of a previously discovered exoplanet with a comet-like tail. So we're used to some planetary bodies in our solar system
3: having tails, and that's comets when they get close to the sun. So what happens is the material, as the comet gets closer and closer, it gets hotter and hotter, and some of the material on the surface sublimates or evaporates off, creating like a, an extended atmosphere that's getting blown off of the, the comet. Now, in exoplanetary systems, what can happen is if you have something like a giant planet uh, with, that has a big atmosphere made of hydrogen and helium, uh, and you get it too close to the star, stellar winds, these these particles that spew off of the, the star, can actually blow off material from the atmosphere of the planet, and you can form a tail behind the planet. So it's kind of like this giant comet, although slightly different reason why it has a tail. So the fact that stars, winds from stars, can blow atmosphere off a planet means that it's really important to understand how the star interacts with the planet to know how the planet can keep its atmosphere. Because we think, for example, Atmospheres are kind of important for life as we know it as well.
2: Well, I can imagine that this would not be welcome news <laughs> if you were living on a planet and to, to find out that, you know, there's a tail of material streaming off your world. I mean, you could look up in the sky maybe and, and see something that was pretty impressive, a big tail, you know, spanning the, the vault of the heavens or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, if, if, you know, there goes your atmosphere. I mean, it's just bad news. It's like, you know, crime starting in your neighborhood or something. It's, it's not good news for you.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and it's something that we think has happened on our solar system as well. If you look at Mars, Mars very early on in its history, in the first billion years or so, had a thick atmosphere, and we believe that that atmosphere got blown off the planet at some point because of winds from the, the sun blowing the atmosphere off.
2: Okay, so Mars has gone bad mm-hmm. thanks to these winds, but I mean, Earth is not at a distance from our sun that's terribly different from that of Mars, so, but it didn't happen here. I mean, why did it happen there? Great question.
3: So we think that the fact that Earth has a global magnetic field that surrounds the planet is what's really important, although there's still a lot of details to work on this. So let me explain why. Um, Earth generates this magnetic field and that magnetic field can act as a shield that sort of staves off the solar wind, these high energy particles that are coming from the sun, that when they get to a planet, they can kind of collide with planetary atmosphere particles and blow them off the planet. But we have a magnetic field and these particles that are coming from the sun, they're um, ions. So they have an electric charge and electric charges have to interact with magnetic fields in a certain way. They have to spiral along the magnetic fields. So all these high energy solar wind particles, they don't make it to the surface of the earth because they end up getting deflected around um, our magnetic field. And the only time that they actually reach the surface of Earth, the Earth is near the poles where our magnetic fields end up coming into, close into the surface of the planet. Uh, so we think that having a magnetic field ends up reducing the amount of atmospheric escape that can occur from interactions with the solar wind. Now, Mars actually did have a magnetic field as well in its early history, and it ended up going away sometime Roughly around the time that we think Mars lost its atmosphere. So do, it's possible that those two things are related, that the reason Mars lost its atmosphere is because it lost its magnetic field.
2: I mean, this is really interesting because uh, what you're saying is that a magnetic field is more than just a nice thing to have, you know, that it makes your compass work or something like that, but it also might protect you. It's like, a you know, the shields up in Star Trek or something like that, that it might, you know, deflect these high-energy particles that are boiling off your star that could otherwise give everybody cancer and ruin their whole day. So uh, is, yeah. is that true? I mean, is, is the magnetic field such an important thing?
3: I think it can be. I think we need to understand it a lot better. So even in our solar system, we end up finding weird situations. So then you say, okay, maybe it means you need to have a magnetic field to have an atmosphere. But that's not true because look at Venus. Venus doesn't have a magnetic field. It's got a really thick atmosphere. So it's not as clear cut as just saying having a magnetic field means you have an atmosphere. And look at Mercury. Mercury has a magnetic field but no atmosphere. So there's more, I'd like to say there's devil in the details here um, in order to understand, but we absolutely have to understand how that magnetic field protects a planet's atmosphere um, in order to understand how the atmosphere evolves, right? So there are ways to create atmosphere, like outgassing from volcanoes, and there's a way to remove atmosphere, like this interaction with the solar wind. But I do think that it's kind of as an ingredient we should be adding to our consideration for exoplanets as to whether they're habitable. It's kind of important to know if you have a magnetic field, something that can shield the surface and the atmosphere from these high-energy particles coming from their parent
2: stars. And this isn't just relevant to intelligent life, right? I mean, all kinds of life would be subject to, well, unfortunate consequences if you didn't have a magnetic field.
3: Yes, that's right. Having a highly radiated surface is not kind of a, a fun place to be if you're life trying to do your thing. Although maybe it, it could cause a lot more mutations, so who knows? In some ways, we don't even know if instead it might actually speed up evolution in some senses, right? These are very big questions that we still need to explore.
2: Yeah, yeah the, the, what you're suggesting there is that some planets might have developed uh, critters with intelligence a lot sooner, well, a lot more quickly in any case, uh, than Earth did. That, you know, Earth is kind of a backward uh, world for intelligent life. So that's why we've lasted this long,
3: or at least we've we've <laughs> managed to make it this far.
2: And, and is it something that you would expect to happen around lots of stars? Or are we particularly privileged to be <laughs> near a star where the planets not only survived, but one of them developed oceans and whatever?
3: Right. So people are trying to kind of use the information we have from exoplanets to ask the question, what's the average number of planets around a star? And it's, it's very frequent that you will find planets orbiting stars. So we should expect pretty much, if you look up into the sky and look at a star, odds are there's a planet, at least one planet, orbiting that star.
2: I mean, does that apply to all kinds of stars? Because, you know, stars do differ from one from the next. And some are brighter than others, others, yeah. whatever. Uh, would you say that about, you know, the majority of, of stars out there? That's a great question. So
3: our star, um, it's kind of this middle-sized star, I guess you could call it, right? Um, And a lot of the studies out there have been looking at smaller types of stars in order to find planets. And the reason for that is the techniques we use to find the planets really end up liking if the mass of the star is relatively small compared to the planet because you can actually perturb the star a lot more. So the, the studies out there usually focus on things like G-type stars or M-type stars. These are the smaller, cooler stars out there. And so it seems like a lot of these stars do have planets around them. Whether or not some of the really big stars out there, these giant O-type stars or A-type stars that are really bright and really hot, I think there's, we don't have enough information yet to understand what goes on there.
2: But even so, I mean, it sounds, if you're of the type to want to uh, share the universe with a lot of other planetary systems that might host life, it sounds like, yeah, uh, it's not such a rare thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, every
3: star you can see with your eye pretty much probably has a planet around it.
2: You know, this is such a difference from what i heard as a kid when i would go to the local planetarium well there wasn't one that was terribly local but you know i do go to a planetarium and they say well this is how the solar system formed, right Uh, some other star got close to our sun a long time ago and ripped material out of our sun or vice versa and that condensed into planets or something like that whatever the details of the process but it it sounded like well maybe that happened but that isn't going to happen very often consequently there aren't very many planets out there and as a result of that you know uh, the universe is largely ours there's nobody to share it with
3: yeah that's absolutely not the case anymore right the only ingredients you really need to form a planetary system around a star you need gravity. You need some clumping of material closer together. You need gravity and rotation. And we find, well, gravity is everywhere. And rotation is just a natural thing that happens with uh, objects, dust, gas out there. So it's not surprising that we're finding so many planets, I think.
2: You say that essentially any star you look at uh, probably mm-hmm. has a planet, at least one planet. Uh, any idea about what fraction of them have a planet that you know, might support life?
3: So that's the big question, right? That's what everyone wants to know. And I think we need to think carefully. We're still asking the question, what are the necessary ingredients to support life on that planet, right? There's life as we know it. And so then you can ask, okay, what what do we need to survive? And you think, well, maybe a decent atmosphere, liquid water on the surface of the earth seems to be very important for the creation of life. Uh, In order to get that, you need to have the right temperature at the surface. So people talk about something called a habitable zone around a star, so kind of the right distance you are from the star so that the temperatures are just right, that water, if it exists on the planet, uh, would be in liquid form. And that's what people are looking at now as sort of the main decider if a planet around some other star is habitable. But it's a really, it's we know so little that this is like a first estimate. And we even know in our own solar system that there is liquid water in the solar system in a whole bunch of different places, not just in the habitable zone of our solar system. So for example, the moons in the outer solar system where the temperatures are really cold, uh, there's not liquid water on the surface, but there is inside. So Europa, a moon of Jupiter, Ganymede, a moon of Jupiter, Enceladus, Titan, these moons of Saturn, they all have global liquid water oceans under their surface where it's a little bit warmer and they can kind of stay protected down there. And so I think we need to expand our definition of this habitable zone, and I think there's lots more places that life might be able to form out there in other solar systems as well.
1: Well, what are those places in our solar system where life might have evolved? Next, we visit a couple of them, and here were Dr. Stanley things we're most likely to find life.
2: Also, why some scientists have a beef with Venus. This episode is Inside Planets on Big Picture Science.
0: With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The planet Venus has always intrigued us. It's considered Earth's sister planet. It's the same size. They are similar in mass and density and have a comparable layered structure. But there's one big difference between these sisters— We'll put it this way. Not only can you fry an egg on the surface of Venus, you can fry a
2: space probe, as we've learned. Temperatures on Venus are about 800 to 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Data suggests that Venus may once have been cool enough to allow for oceans of liquid water before the runaway greenhouse effect turned it into the hottest planet in the solar system.
1: So although we think it's an inhospitable planet, there are theories that life could still exist in its atmosphere. But that's not astronomer Sabina Stanley's hot spot for finding life off Earth. She reveals her personal favorite and the future of NASA missions that will look for alien life. But first, why she's written a paper about the interior of all the planets in the solar system except Venus. So
3: I'd like to say that Venus is the worst planet in the solar system, just a really horrible planet. I'm very mad at Venus, just so you know. Now, in reality, love Venus, it's a great planet. Uh, But as someone who tries to understand what goes on inside planets, Venus is like the least helpful planet in the solar system. So you imagine this, like you're a scientist and you've come up with all these cool ways to learn about the interior of a planet. We have things like seismology, we have things like gravity fields, magnetic fields, all these wonderful ways. Every single one of them doesn't work at Venus. And it's so frustrating. So as an example, On Earth, we've learned a lot about the structure of the interior from seismic waves. So these waves that are created when we have earthquakes, they travel through the Earth. Uh, Their speeds are completely determined by the material properties that that they're traveling through. So we'd love to do seismology on Venus. Unfortunately, the surface is a horrible place on Venus and would melt any seismometer you try to put on there. uh, So that's not going to be possible. Venus doesn't have a magnetic field, so we can't use uh, magnetic fields to learn about what's going on inside the planet. So for example, on Earth, the fact that we have a magnetic field tells us that there's a liquid iron core at the center of the Earth that's churning around, convecting, creating a dynamo that generates this magnetic field. Uh, We don't have that on Venus, so we can't know that for sure. And even on Earth and other planets, one important factor that we can use to learn about the inside is its rotation. So it turns out that all planets, we like to talk about planets being spheres, but they're not. They're bulgy at their equators, they're more like ellipsoids, and they're bulgy at their equators because of their rotation. So when a planet rotates, it gets fatter at the equator, and how fat it gets is directly related to what the structure of the material is inside. So we can actually learn about the structure by looking at how fat the planet gets. Then you go to Venus, and Venus is rotating so slowly that it has very little bulge, so we can't even use that. So Venus is just a very frustrating planet that doesn't want us to learn anything about its interior, and that's why I I have
2: a beef with Venus. Well, uh, but Venus has always been a bit mysterious, right? Because when you look at Venus, you're not looking at the surface of Venus the way you know, would would obtain from Mars, I and mean, if you look at Mars and you see, okay, there's some craters here and some flat areas there, and you're looking at the surface of Mars. But you look at Venus and you're only looking at the, the weather.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So you can't even use sort of like just optical wavelengths to study what goes on on the surface. If you want to kind of peer at the surface of Venus, you have to use wavelengths of light that can penetrate the atmosphere. So we use things like radio waves, radar, uh, in order to figure out what's going on on the surface.
2: Yeah. Can you describe, just for the benefit of those who are contemplating a move to Venus, can you describe what it would be like to be standing on the surface of Venus?
3: Yeah, so Venus has an incredibly thick atmosphere. It's mostly carbon dioxide, but there's also a bunch of toxic materials in the atmosphere. So if you were standing on the surface of Venus, first of all, the pressure would be extreme, uh, and so you would probably be crushed. Uh, Secondly, the temperature would be hundreds of degrees, so very, very hot. Uh, and you'd have to be breathing things like sulfuric acid. So that's why Venus is not a fun place to be.
2: I've tried breathing sulfuric acid. And, you know, it's kind of bitter. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> like it much. Well, does this explain why whenever we send spacecraft to Venus, and when I say we, I mean, not just, you know, the United States, uh, but even the old Soviet Union. I mean, the spacecraft would land on Venus, and 20 minutes later, they would all conk out. Uh, why was that? I mean, would, was this just bad engineering?
3: No, this is absolutely what I just said, right? Those spacecraft were not expected to last long on the surface of Venus, right? The Venera missions, the plan was land, try to get some data, do it as an engineering first before the uh, instrumentation all basically dies because it basically melts or corrodes away. Um, Interestingly, a lot of the ideas about how one could perhaps survive on Venus is not about the surface of Venus, but is about um, in the clouds of Venus. So if you get high enough in Venus above that horribly toxic atmosphere, you can actually get to a reasonable um, place where maybe the, the the temperatures and pressures and, and the uh, the composition is more habitable to things. So there's, there's an idea out there to also look for um, the possibility of life in the clouds of Venus as opposed to on the surface.
2: Sort of floating life in the temperate, yeah the temperate part of the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, people are always interested in extraterrestrials, mostly because, at least in the movies, a lot of them come to Earth and provide instant urban renewal for, for example, New York by, you know, flattening the place. <laughs> I mean, so, so, but I mean, where where would you go if you, you got one shot? You know, you can have this one rocket over here. And, uh, you know, go find some life with that where would you send it so if i
3: had anywhere i could send something to go find some life i would go to our solar system i would go to the moon titan which is orbiting saturn so titan's a really great moon first of all i'd go there because it'd be a cool place to be so it's (laughs) it's fairly small which means the gravity is low but it has a nitrogen based atmosphere that's about as thick as earth's atmosphere so the atmosphere on on, uh, titan in terms of its main composition is very similar Um, but this combination of a thick atmosphere and low gravity means it's really easy to fly on Titan. So you could put cardboard on your arms and flap them and you'd be able to fly on Titan. Yeah, even though you
2: couldn't breathe, right? Yes,
3: this is the problem, you can't breathe there. (laughs) But the amazing thing about Titan is it seems to have all these ingredients that we think are important to life it's got a liquid water ocean under the surface. It has complex organic molecules on the surface. So there are, uh, there's from methane in the, uh, in the atmosphere of Titan that ends up having chemistry happen to it. It, gets, it, it interacts with solar energy to create larger and larger carbon-based uh, molecule chains. Uh, we find some very complex carbon molecules on the surface of Titan. And you know we think that these carbon molecules, how life forms is you eventually get more complex and complex uh, organic compounds together and eventually you get something like amino acids, something like proteins and you know, DNA, things like that. So there are at least the beginning signs of stuff like that happening on Titan right now. And we're very fortunate because there is a mission in the works to go to Titan. So I don't even have to come up with the money to find, get this rocket to, to go there. All I have to do is wait for the dragonfly mission to go to Titan.
2: So all you have to do is sort of hitch a ride on an... Exactly. <laughs> that, that, that sounds good. Well, I mean, th- this sort of answers a question I had certainly when I was a kid. I mean, it's one thing to say that, well, life could survive on a planet like this, but those kinds of planets might be kind of rare. So even though it could survive if you could get it there, if it isn't there already, you know, maybe it'll remain sterile for the remainder of the history of the universe. But But it sounds like if it can... I mean, it sounds like there are a lot of places where it could survive. So the the real question then is, well, where does it start? Where can you expect life to make an appearance? And most of them would be able to uh, retain that life for a long period of time.
3: Yeah, this is the question, right? We don't fully understand. We can't. Create life from inorganic material here on Earth yet, so we don't, we can't say that we know exactly what the recipe is. Let's say for life on another um, body, and so all we can do is say here are the things that we think were important, and ask the question: Are those um, important components? on another body. So I think it's still an open question. I think lots of work needs to be done. More experimental work on taking these complex molecules and zapping them with energy and see what happens when they have certain chemical reactions. I think a lot of work still needs to be done.
2: Okay. Well, let's just briefly dwell on some of the big picture questions here. Based on what we've learned about the composition of planets and how they're formed and that sort of thing, uh, what's your take on the prognosis for life being a very common phenomenon? I mean. Thirty years ago, you could say, look, life is a very unusual occurrence, and make some arguments about that. Make arguments to state that, you know, yeah, there's a, there are a lot of, uh, you know, planets out there, but there is probably not very much life. And then, on the other hand, you heard from others who said, no, 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 that's not true. There's nothing exceptional about what's happened here on Earth. It's probably happened in, in similar ways in many different places. What's your take? Do you think that, uh, you know, the universe is rife with life?
3: Uh, I think it's a possibility. It's hard to know for sure. I think that some of the things we think are important ingredients like water, we are now finding that water ends up pretty much anywhere in the solar system, even where it shouldn't be, right? We now find uh, solid ice in craters on Mercury where the temperature is so hot there shouldn't be any water there, but you can get those types of ingredients in really pretty much anywhere you can think of. We have water inside the earth. So I think there's lots of potential for there to be life out there and there to be lots of life out there. But I think we need to better understand the process of how life forms in order to know for sure.
2: What about just taking the straightforward observational approach? Just send a bunch of rockets to to Venus or wherever and look for life.
3: I mean, that's what we're doing, right? We've got rovers on Mars looking for signatures there. Um, Looking at the icy moons in the outer solar system is going to be a really important thing to do when looking for signatures of life. We have the Europa Clipper mission going next year to Europa, this other icy moon of Jupiter. We have the Titan uh, mission Dragonfly that's going to explore a very large area of Titan in order to study what is its composition like? Are there signs of life there? Uh, So I think there's gonna be some big stuff happening in the next decade or so in order to help us answer this question. Sabina Stanley, thanks so
2: very much for speaking with us. Thanks so much, this was great.
1: Sabina Stanley is a planetary scientist at Johns Hopkins University, and she is the author of What's Hidden Inside Planets. Well, Seth, that brings us to the big picture in this episode about planets. And there's a lot happening in planets, intense pressure, intense temperature. But the big question, and if you can just summarize for us, is why does it matter?
2: Yeah, that's a good question because, sure, there's an academic interest in it. I mean, we just want to know what's on the inside of these worlds that we can, well, in some cases, see with our naked eye. I mean, that's just curiosity, and curiosity drives a lot of science. But the other thing, and this this is probably the bigger picture is that if we understand what's inside planets, we also understand in a, a, a deeper way how planets are formed. And that's obviously interesting because if we find that planets are formed in a, in a manner that is, you know, very very commonly found in the universe, then there are probably a lot of planets out there and, you know, it might pay to look for signs of other intelligence. So it's, it's a way of, you know, knowing something about ourselves and about, you know, our neighbors who might be a little bit like us.
1: And presumably all of this activity would have happened when the universe was quite chaotic and there was a lot of uh, heat and there was a lot of pressure. And is that when planet formation took place?
2: Well, uh, I think the universe is, has has a habit of being chaotic, but actually, you know, our solar system isn't all that old. It's like four and a half billion years old, which is even older than I am, but, you know, it's not as old as the universe, which is three times that age. But it it is old enough to, you know, have produced a planet that eventually produced us. There have been lots of planets formed in the universe, as far as we know, and, you know, we study the ones we can get to, which are the ones in our solar system, trying to understand whether we're some sort of miracle, you know, that our planet is very unusual, or whether we're not. And if we're not, then, again, there's hope that we may find some, uh, you know, some, some other, that we might find some beings out there that... You know, might want to converse with us or, or at least indicate that they're out there. But Seth, is, is
1: all of this in the past? Is planetary formation something that has already happened? I mean, with stars, for example, stars are still evolving. That's why we observe red dwarfs. Those are stars towards the end of their lives. Um, are planets still evolving now? Are they aging? Are they still being born? Or is all of that something that's already occurred?
2: Yeah. Well, I I doubt that it's already occurred. We do know that stars are being formed still, right? There's still new stars out there. There There's stars that are a lot younger than our sun. So, you know, we're still generating at least the stars and presumably the planets that orbit them. So, uh, you know, we're just another kid on the block and the block is producing lots of kids all the time. So some of them will be older than we are. So there are undoubtedly planets that are not four and a half billion years old, but maybe 10 billion years old. And they might have, who knows, very advanced civilizations. They've certainly had enough time to produce those. And, of course, there are the young planets that are just getting underway.
1: But that's all long ago, right? Because when we look back into the universe, right, we're looking back into deep time, right? So all of that's
2: happened. No, don't, don't. Don't write it off. It, it, it hasn't all happened. No, uh, any more than, you know, we've run out of things to invent or, or just things to write or anything like that. No, the universe continues to produce new stars and new planets, you know. So uh, there's hope for new neighbors all the time.
1: This show would not be possible without the seismic talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
2: Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that studies life in all its complexity. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters.
1: The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science that explores what the interior planets can tell us about the evolution of our solar system and where we might find life is Inside Planets.